Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm coming to you from New York City because it's Thursday. Also coming to you from New York City, of course, we've got Ryan Goodman of NYU and Just Security. How are you doing, Ryan? Doing well, David. Thanks. And we have, uh, of course, this time of the week, always Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, practicing physician and former senior official in the Obama White House. How are you, Kavita? I'm, I'm good, David. Did you know that there are less white people than there were in 1790? Uh, n- <laughs> no, it's the first time since 1790. That the number of white people has gone down. Um, uh, Heather can I, I clear did that, us up. I did, on, I did that on purpose because of our special guest today. I decided. Oh, I, 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 I see. In, in any event, we have a special guest, and that's Heather Cox Richardson, who's a professor of history at Boston College and is a internet superstar. Hi, how are you, Heather? I'm good. We had exchanged while well, you you were, I guess, about to do. Uh, a lunch with uh, our uh, colleague, Ed Luce, which turned into a lunch with the FT, which I read and I thought that was great. I saw that Ed had devoted a lot of it, uh, at, no doubt out of jealousy, to your enormous Substack success. And uh, I've seen a lot of articles. I, w- you know, I went online and I looked and there's a lot of stuff being written about that. And before we get into the real substance of this, I noticed, you know, you and I have roughly the same number of Twitter followers, you have 1.5 million Facebook followers, and this has led to a giant Substack response. My daughters kept me off of Facebook when they were little. They said they didn't want me to go on. And I just want, you know, your view as an expert, can I blame them for the fact that I have not had a giant Substack success? Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm a big proponent of laying that all to the doorstep of your children whenever it's possible to do that. Um, yeah. Well, okay, good. And I will I will turn to that as soon as I possibly can. Perhaps we should talk about some bigger developments. I think one of the reasons that you've had the kind of uh, success that you've had is that we seem to be living in momentous times, but people are never quite sure what's historic, what's news hype. What's a big deal? And you have on a daily basis tried to frame things. Just in the past week, I have sensed that something is different in the way we are looking at Trump and the insurrection due to recent developments regarding the pressure he was putting on DOJ and the pressure he was putting on people in Georgia. And that this makes it look more likely that DOJ is going to have to criminally investigate and possibly charge him and that that could be a watershed. 
do you think we are at a watershed or has our two-year, three-year search or thirst for watersheds just driven us to see illusions every time that, you know, there's something to cling to? I think in a larger sense, we're in a watershed moment for our democracy, where we have what almost seems to be a race between, on the one hand, the forces that have arrayed themselves behind the former president, President Trump. And as those doors sort of close in on him, not only the investigation from the January 6th insurrection and the news that's coming out about the Department of Justice and the investigation into his taxes, which now it turns out certain um, certain amounts of his taxes will be going to Congress and investigations into the Trump organization and Weisselberg. And, you know, all these things are bearing down on the Trumpers as well, of course, as the spike in COVID-19 cases again. So on the one hand, you have a sense, I think, that the nation is finally turning against the Trumpers. But on the other hand, and not to be forgotten, is that the Republican-dominated states are taking away the vote from people who are opposed to that movement as rapidly as they possibly can. And for me, every day when I get up, it feels like a race. You know, one day we're watching the consolidation of power on the side of the Trump forces. The next day you're seeing a pushback from people who are saying, no, that's not the direction we want the country to go. And so you know, at the end of the day, I do feel like we're in a watershed moment, but it's a watershed moment about the survival of our democracy. And honestly, I can't tell you day by day which one I think is in the lead. I want to go to Ryan and, and Kavita in a second so they can comment and ask questions. But I, I want to pose a quick follow up to that, because on one of our podcasts, I may have been earlier this week or it was last week, another of our regulars, Corey Shockey, compared the moment in her mind to the 1850s. And I just wanted, you know, this is, you know, right in your sweet spot there. I wanted to know what you think of that. I think absolutely. There are many ways in which this looks where we are right now, very much like the 1850s. But the difference between then and now is that in the 1850s, the people who were trying to destroy our democracy were not within our government. They pulled outside of it. So this truly is a unique moment to have this many members of a major political party within our governmental system working to tear it down. Okay. Um, first, just to pick up a little bit on the watershed question, maybe Ryan, you have a comment on that, and then maybe you have a question for Heather. So the comment is that I also do worry, just in the ways in which that you just described it, Heather, that there's a kind of a realignment of some of the same forces that were present on January 6th, in the sense that I think a huge part of it was doors closing in on Trump. So he gets more desperate. And the intersection of public health measures generating this anti-government conspiracy concerns alongside the Stop the Steal, a uh, big lie. And it's that combination that in part produces January 6th. And then here we are re-entering yet another period of the pandemic in which that we're at this a similar intersection where the forces run together again. So things closing in on him. And response to the mask mandates. And I just thought it would be also good to hear you talk a little bit about the most recent Substack essay that you have up, which is about the what looks like the emergence of you know street violence and political violence in our lives, um, and the ways in which we've seen that in the last several days with respect to the public health measures. 
And I think it also dovetails with what you just said with respect to um, members of the government fomenting some of this, because uh, just also in the last, I think, 48 hours, there's been reporting from CNN and um, Paul Waldman at the Washington Post that the Republicans might see it as their midterm strategy to go up against the CDC, Fauci, and these public health measures, so that they're actually going to push this even further down the road, down the line in terms of creating this ruckus. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about that and how you see that in a kind of a historical frame of street violence, political violence. Well, what's interesting about that material that I wrote about last night about the, the street violence, and let me lay that argument out, and that's that one of the things that we have not studied nearly as well as we need to in America is the American right wing and the, the branch of it that led into Nazism. And there is increasing work being done now, and it's very good work. And the piece that I was was bouncing off last night talks about the fact that when people were trying to look at the rise of Nazism in America, they tended to look for it in the same way that it really developed in Italy, for example, as a top-down ideology. And the point that that author made was, in fact, that in America, it really came from France. Actually, he was making the argument and the idea of pulling together street gangs to go ahead and launch really a political movement out of the violence in the streets. And use that to overturn the government. And of course, as an American historian, I could look back and say, you know, America's always had street violence, but that was a very good point that it had not been used deliberately to overthrow the government. And I just think that's such a smart take, the author's take on how America got a political movement out of populism, because it really brings together the ideology of what becomes Nazism from our street gangs. And he makes the point that once you're in a street gang, once you're going ahead and wearing the shirts and doing the salutes and showing up and harassing people, then often you learn the rest, you learn the ideology. And I just thought that sort of bottom up coinciding with top down was incredibly smart anyway. But then when you put it together with the history of America, I thought it worked incredibly well. Now, the interesting thing of where we are right now, it seems to me, and again, I'm just an observer. I'm not a real player in this, but using the idea of turning against vaccines and turning against masks seemed to me to be really a pretty good strategy when it looked as if we were going to achieve herd immunity, because you could go ahead and make that cultural argument and play to the cultural forces that are so effective among the MAGA group. And get away with it because the numbers were going down and it looked like you were going to be able to whip people up and have it pay off at the polls without really paying a penalty. Now that we have this moment where it's really clear that the people who are getting sick and dying are, in fact, the far right Trump supporters, I'm not entirely sure it's going to play all that well. And one of the things that seems to me to have really jumped out this week is the fact that so many people who are vaccinated, who were hoping to get back to life, who did expect to have you know a normal school year and to be able to take up their lives where they left them in February of 2020, are now getting really angry. And you see that obviously on Twitter, you see it in the articles that are running around the country, but you also see it on Facebook and on TikTok and on places where people are, um, are probably closer to the ground. And again, the numbers say that more than 60%, as high as 69% of Americans do want masks, do want vaccines. And the people who were standing in against it, the statistics I saw earlier today were 6% of the American population. And I'm just not sure that's going to play terribly well. And again, if you look at the 1850s, what you get these turning points where people who thought the status quo was pretty much okay were willing again and again and again to concede to the elite slave power. And finally, they had had too much. 
And when they'd had too much, they started pushing back in a really big way. And this idea that in this case, children are going to die, that's something that almost any society has a really hard time coming to grips with. I would point out that today, the White House COVID czar, Jeff Zients, pointed out that former GOP frontrunner, I'm going to frame it that way, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has more cases in his state than exist in the 30 lowest states in the in the United States right now. In other words, and that Florida and and Texas are responsible for 40% of the cases. So this just bears out what you were saying and gives a nice segue to go to Kavita. I'll try to be just very short because I, I really do want to hear by the way, if you haven't watched some of Heather's Facebook lives, because I don't think they translate to your sub stack. There was the one today, Bulma Mankiller was excellent. So I, I, th- I think that was today. If it was I wasn't today. Thank you. Yeah, it was. So I, what I find nice about your lives is that you often take something that doesn't seem to be in your newsletter and really just help to, I think it's why it's appealing and anyway, I'll leave it at that because it's a story we should talk about another time and about the women that kind of get forgotten in, in some of our history. Number one, I would love to hear kind of how you think about you've drawn so much parallels between the 1850s and you talk about what has happened around the Confederacy and how there are such similarities to now. If I think about my area, kind of COVID and what you just reflected on with Ryan and David. How do you think about that in parallel with, I was joking, but I do see it as a correlation with the shift or the census reporting that's out today. I guess, Heather, I don't see it as an accident that I've felt like the demographics of our country have been changing, but that is exactly the tension, much like during the Civil War, that is exactly the tension that there is, it feels like a very vocal minority that's kind of holding on to it. But I, I would love to kind of understand how you put those those issues into context. To me, it's it feels like it's similar groups that are not just against masks. I mean, Heather, I think you've seen this. I have a friend who literally has now had to actually hire private security. She's a pediatrician in Tennessee. She was one of the ones that was kind of attacked at a school board meeting in Franklin County, which is a wealthy suburb. And she was terrified and said, you know, my husband asked that we like hire a private security guard. That's crazy. And she's a woman of color. And it just feels like there's these swirling intersections. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and whether you do see kind of a relationship to kind of the census findings that were released today. Absolutely. And I think you hit the nail on the head. And the the census that came out today, the census findings that came out today and and I always take censuses with a really big grain of salt because there's, you know, it's hard to get them and it depends who's in charge. And they, some of them are really bad and some are really good and all that. But what the census showed was two things that seemed to me that jumped out. And then again, remind, remember, it is big summer vacation and theoretically I spent the day picking blackberries and on the water. So I didn't look at this really closely, but it did appear that the change in the last 10 years has been that people have moved increasingly to cities. And that the white population has declined relative to the non-white population in America. And the ways in which that moment, that makes this moment similar to the 1850s, is that the increase in population amongst people who would like a different kind of government than the one that is currently entrenched is growing. 
And what happened in the 1850s and what we are, where we are right now is that we had a dramatic crisis in democracy. And that in the 1850s, the elite slaveholders, and I always make that distinction between the majority of enslavers owned one or two other human beings, but the elite slavers had 25, 50 people, a number of plantations, and they were really an oligarchy. And they called themselves an oligarchy, and they were called an oligarchy. And they recognized that if, in fact, you had free and fair elections, and if, in fact, democracy permitted people to vote fairly compared to them, they would not only lose their ability to enslave other people, they would lose their power in the country. And so what they did is they took over the government piece by piece. They took over the Senate, they took over the presidency, they took over the Supreme Court. And by 1856, 1858, they were trying to take over the House of Representatives as well and simply turn the country into a country that backed enslavement across all sections and spread it across the Southern Hemisphere as well, spread human enslavement across the Southern Hemisphere as well. In the present moment, we have something that looks very much like that. You know, since World War II, with the rise of the liberal consensus embraced by both the Democrats and the Republicans, the idea that the government has a role to play regulating the economy and providing a basic social safety net and protecting civil rights and promoting infrastructure, people who objected to those things primarily because they didn't like the idea of government regulation and certainly didn't like taxation, gradually have gone ahead and gerrymandered the system, suppressed the votes, taken over the Supreme Court, stacked the Electoral College. And we are at a moment now where democracy is truly in crisis. And this census that just came out today indicates that we have a problem with the fact that the Republican Party is increasingly getting a lock on the machinery of our government, while the majority of Americans do not, in fact, support them. And it really looks like with this new census that the gerrymandering in Republican-dominated states is going to be sufficient to enable the Republicans to go ahead and take over the House of Representatives, despite the fact that their candidates consistently get more than a million and a half fewer votes than the, than the Democrats do. And as you know, the Senate right now is split 50-50, but the senators there on the Republican side represent, I think it's 40.5 million fewer people than the Democrats do. Obviously, when the Republicans win the presidency, they have done so for the last two times only in the Electoral College. What we're looking at now, like we did in the 1850s, is a really dramatic crisis in the concept of American democracy, I think. It's a, a profound insight. One of the other things that came out of the census today, one of the data points that I saw flagged was that the number of people identifying as white alone fell by 8.6% in the past decade, while those identifying as multicultural rose by 276%. So that's a real sort of sign of, of you know, another dimension of this shift of the country from you know, a white dominated country to a minority majority country, which is supposed to take place according to census estimates in the next 22 years. But that suggests the next 22 years are going to be a very volatile period because the people that were in power are feeling threatened. But another consequence of this census, quite apart from the gerrymandering that you talked about, is that if more people moved into urban areas, this is going to increase the disproportionality in the Senate because the urban areas tend to be blue. And so we are going to move more and more power to the white few as the country becomes increasingly 
different from them. And of course, you mentioned this power grab that's going on in state after state across the country. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of urgency in the leadership of the Democratic Party to address it or the political will to address it. It doesn't, there's, there's not going to be any visit to voting rights till the fall, if then, and key Democrats have said they don't want any part of it. How dangerous do you think that is? I think if we don't get voting rights, that we will lose our democracy and turn into a single party state that looks very much like the American South did between 1880 and 1964, which is not a democracy and in which there is no such thing as the rule of law. I think capital will flee this country. And um, we're looking at, I guess I don't want to predict 25 years down the road because I don't think that that system can stay. I mean, what does that actually look like if you try and game it out? In the short term, you can stay in power through violence the same way that white Southerners did after Reconstruction. But in the long term, are those majorities really going to say, oh, yeah, this is fine? They're not. So, I am very much in favor of a Voting Rights Act. I don't think that that fight is done yet, frankly. I don't think they're going to abandon it. I I think the Democrats in the Senate recognize that they must get one through or lose our democracy. I do think that that they understand that. And I'm hoping that they will act on it because if they don't, I am extraordinarily pessimistic because we have had that kind of... Everyone says, oh, that couldn't happen in America. It did happen in America. We had it happen in America in 1876 and then to be cemented in 1880. And it stayed in power. That one party system stayed in power for almost three generations. We've had it happen before. We can have it happen again. And I think we're right on the verge of it. Chilling. Ryan? I guess I wanted to return to the question of um, political violence, because when we're talking about the percentage of the country that might be anti uh, mask mandates and the rest. You, you mentioned, I think it's 6%. But there's also that study that came out um, from the University of Chicago Political Science Group that there's 8% um, of the country, which they say more dramatically, they say that means 21 million P- Americans, 21 million adults who believe two things. One, that Joe Biden is not a legitimate president, the election was stolen. And two, that it is legit- legitimate to use force to reinstate Trump <laughs> to the White House. I mean, I laugh because it seems so absurd, but 21 million Americans think that. So it might not be for electoral politics a very wise move, and maybe the Republicans will back off of it for that reason, to be so anti-mask mandates and the, and the rest. But it seems like there's this budding constituency of a very volatile, violent, prone part of our politics that we have somebody like the, you know, the most popular um, cable news host, uh, Tucker Carlson, is broadcasting directly to them. So it seems as though that's still, even though the number might be small, that's 8% for that, you know, that study, it's pretty gigantic, I think, if we think about it in terms of actual support for political violence right after we just had a violent insurrection. You know, it's not like it's an abstract term for them in some sense. Is that the way you see it too? And then that's also in part what motivates your thinking when you talk about like street violence as an as an issue for present day politics? Well the street violence 
portion I just find really interesting because if you think about the rise of right-wing ideologies and how they come to America and where the wedding is between, for example, the ideas of somebody like a Mussolini and America, which was it's a weird fit unless you look at our long history of right-wing violence and say, oh, these things met actually in the streets, not the other way around. That's really what interested me in that. But in terms of the potential for violence amongst a portion of the population, however, I think you said 21 million people. One of the points that, that it always seems to me to be worth making is that we have always had those people and we will always have those people. The question is, how do you reduce their ability to affect the future? And two things jump out. One of them is a pattern throughout American history, and I really don't know any history but American history, but in American history, when the economy is good for everybody, when we have a period in which there's a compression between the, the income and the wealth of people at the top and income at the wealth of people at the bottom, as compression, for example, like we had between 1933 and 1981, there's less violence. You know, people don't feel like they need to take the streets as much as they do in a time like the 1890s or the 1850s or the present when, when, or the 1920s when money really works its way upward and people feel like they can't put food on the table. So one of the things that Biden is doing that I think is really important and really interesting is going ahead and trying to address that economic issue. But the other portion of that I think is worth taking a look at when you look at violence is what happened in Germany after World War II and how there they tried to restore some semblance of, of normalcy and comparing that to what happened in America after the Civil War. And one of the things that worked in East Germany that did not happen in, I'm sorry, that worked in West Germany did not happen in East Germany. And this echoes back, I think, to the American South after Reconstruction is the rule of law. So in East Germany, there was much more of a focus on hunting down Nazis and imprisoning them or punishing them for their behavior, regardless of whether or not you were following the strict rule of the law. In West Germany, a lot of Nazis got off because there was an emphasis on following the strict rule of the law. And one of the things that I think really jumps out about where we are in America today is that really since Watergate, people on the right have not answered to the law in the same way that the rest of us have to. So you, of course, have Nixon, who manages to skate. If Nixon had actually had to go to trial, you would not have had, you would not have had Iran-Contra, you wouldn't have weapons of mass destruction, you probably wouldn't have had Trump, you wouldn't have had the Bundys, you wouldn't have had so many people on the right being able to whip up violence without recognizing that they were going to pay a price for it. So one of the things that I'm watching right now is the degree to which the insurrectionists actually have the book thrown at them, the degree to which, you know, the Dominion Systems manages to go ahead and sue um, Sidney Powell and all the people involved in, in defaming them. Because I think when people really do have to answer to the rule of law, that's going to take a lot of your 21 million people back to their basements and grumbling, you know, on their living room couches, as opposed to picking up a gun or a, a knife or a baton and ending up in the rotunda, of the Capitol building going, you know, where's Nancy Pelosi? Here's a quick follow-up question on that. So I think a hard empirical question is the missing piece of what you just described, which is what do you then think about accountability and throwing the book at Trump? Because at one level, you could say it's similar to your Nixon example in which that's what's necessary to establish and reestablish the rule of law. But on the other hand, you could think 
that is actually one trigger point that could seriously galvanize some very bad actors. Um, so how do you think through that equation? I feel really strongly about this because I am a scholar of reconstruction. The rule of law is the rule of law. And if, in fact, there is a reason to indict him and to run the political system, I'm sorry, run the legal system through, it's imperative. And the reason that I say that is because they did this calculation in 1865, and Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant thought that it would be better for the country if they did not, in fact, bring to justice Jefferson Davis and Alexander Stevens and all the people who had taken the Confederates, Confederacy out of the Union and had led to the deaths of more than 600,000 people and a cost of almost $6 billion. And they thought that they were doing a favor to the country. And all they did was they hardened the resistance to the United States government and increase and the people who had been fighting for the Confederacy and who one would think would be like, oh, it's a merciful government. This is a good thing. To the contrary, they said our cause was so just that they didn't have the heart to go ahead and convict us or take us to trial. And if you think about the damage that that did going forward in the last 150 years, that the numbers of Americans who died because of that image of the Confederacy as recently as January 6th, I'm like, you know, I understand the political fallout, but if we don't want to simply to create another lost cause in American history, anybody who should be brought to justice under our rule of law must be brought to justice. That's not a question to ask a Reconstruction historian. <laughs> yeah, well, I so strongly agree. And I have to say, as a, something of a part-time historian in, in the work that I have done, I've come to this, the same exact conclusion that the decisions regarding leniency and Reconstruction and Ford's pardon of Nixon were disastrous errors, even though they have been hailed by many people over time. I would also point out that another period to look at when America thought it was changing because of waves of immigration and also relocation of blacks within the United States is the period right after World War I and period of the Palmer raids. And, and there, there was violence against immigrants. There rounded them up. They arrested them. There was violence against Blacks. We had the whole Tulsa experience and some other things, violence against the military used against minors and you know, others. And it was, it was a very volatile period for much the same reason. So it is another example of that. Kavita, I know you've got just uh, six or seven minutes. Go ahead. Heather, you wrote, um, I think it was shortly after January 6th, and I'm going to butcher the quote, something about between the insurrection and also kind of the election in Georgia that the lines between democracy and our enemies are much more clear. And I've reflected on that. I agree with that. I want to ask, though, I've been reflecting on what's been coming up with the Rosen testimony, et cetera. Feels like there's that is very true with what we saw and even what we couldn't see on January 6th, but have now heard public testimony from Capitol policemen and women. But when Rosen testified, it felt like we also identified the kind of insurrection and the criminalization that occurred internally that we still don't know. Ryan and his colleagues have done a lot to uncover and unpack some of that. So as David, my question really is, how much do we know about kind of the enemy within and the kind of feedback being a doctor, not a lawyer, a physician, not a lawyer? There's a lot of valid criticism of the Department of Justice and some of the infrastructure. People want to put that blame on Merrick Garland. He's the leader. 
and the attorney general. But there does feel like there must have been something kind of about the infrastructure that allowed for this, in, in my world, kind of this permeation of a hemorrhagic virus in the form of Donald Trump. And so what do you as a reconstructionist, as a historian reflecting on the past? Is it Nixon's White House? Where are there some analogies or am I overinterpreting kind of this internal cancer that I'm not even sure we fully discovered? It's like when we diagnose a cancer in a patient and then we find out, you know, that it's actually metastasized throughout the body, but it, we kind of uncover that after imaging, maybe even months later. Is there something to be said similar to that here? And something to kind of take from that. I do want to point out on Kavita's bath here that she's got to go do an MSNBC hit. And so that if she disappears, it's not personal. No. And in fact, I will say this. I'm so excited. I could be on this podcast with you, Heather, and keep you here for five hours, but I won't. But yes, it's It's a real pleasure to get to talk to you as well. I feel like we should plot. Yeah. (laughs) But I love that analogy because one of the things that has really jumped out at me is, you know, this is what I study. This is, you know, I'm, I do political American history. This is what I do for fun. This is what I, you know, I'm, I'm actually took the morning off and read a biography of Al Smith, you know, so it's like, that's my happy place. So I have not missed a lot of this stuff, but I am shocked at the degree to which I missed the rising authoritarianism in the Republican Party. I mean, I'm the historian of the Republican Party, and I could tell you every step of the way to what I thought was oligarchy. The jump from oligarchy to authoritarianism was so effortless on the part of the lawmakers in Washington. I do do distinguish between the lawmakers and many Republican voters who really aren't paying that close attention. But that leap was so effortless that it made me really go back and take another look at things that I had seen happening, but sort of worked into, oh, this is kind of on the sideline. But, you know, Republicans were talking about suppressing the vote as early as 1986. By 1994, they're talking about voter fraud and how Democrats haven't legitimately won any elections because they're only winning by a voter fraud. And you see this early on and start to think, wow, you know, it wasn't the side story. This was actually the main stage. And I missed all of that happening. So the idea um, where we are right now in terms of the idea that this is something that is metastasized and we're seeing a lot more, I think there is this major change in the Republican Party. In terms of the government, one of the problems that I think we're addressing right now or recognizing right now is a lot of what we think of as being part of our rule system is, in fact, based on the belief that anybody who is in charge of the government is fundamentally going to support it. So they might disagree about things in the 1870s, for example, or the 1920s or the 1940s, but they fundamentally believe in democracy. And right now we have lawmakers who fundamentally do not believe in democracy, and there are a lot of them. That's only happened once before in our history, and that was in 1879. And they came very close, actually, to destroying the government in 1879. But the good guys stepped up to the plate and managed to swing the American population behind the idea of continuing the government. And so most people don't even know that story. But the recognition that a lot of our government is not run by rules, but rather by goodwill and the belief of all the people operating it in our democracy, I think has been a real wake-up call because what do you do when you elect people to office who don't actually support the principles of your government? That's a great point, by the way, about where this started because so many people tie it strictly to Trump, but 
back in the 80s, Reagan, Murdoch, Roger Ailes, Roger Stone, Lee Atwater, moving on to the 90s, Newt Gingrich, Tom DeLay. There was a movement in this direction for the past 35 years, and it couldn't have happened overnight. Well, and so many of the people you just mentioned were on Nixon's team. I mean, these, you know, Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, Lee Atwater, you know, Roger Ailes, those all go back to Nixon in 68. And Pat Buchanan, Pat Buchanan goes back to uh, Goldwater. Pat Buchanan was a speechwriter for Goldwater. Right. And, and Nixon, and Ailes came out of Nixon and said, we need our own network. And then took advantage of it and built that. Last question, Ryan. Just to add one other note, to, um, I think a great book is the Carol Anderson book, uh, One Person No Vote, which also shows the multi-decade trajectory of the effort to just suppress the vote and try to shore up a white minority control, if that's what, it's, if that's what it takes, because I don't think it's a fundamental belief in democracy, it's a belief in power. So I, I guess just to also dovetail off a little bit of what Kavita had mentioned as well, uh, just to get your thoughts on the other dimension of the recent news of the day of the of the last uh, week, which is inside the government, not just the on the hill, but rather inside the Justice Department, um, the level of corruption that we're seeing uh, that existed with in the individual of Jeffrey Clark. Um, also, it, sound, it seems like to me, Mark Meadows, just really, really bad actors. But I think what is also troubling in a certain sense is the ways in which other actors try to maybe fend off Trump, do the minimum that was necessary to calm him down, and then still preserve as much as they could. But in doing that, they did a lot of damage. So it's just remarkable in terms of the Jeffrey Rosen testimony, uh, things the Post that had a quote from what he said in his opening statement to the Senate Judiciary Committee, which is that the Department of Justice maintained its integrity and the rule of law throughout. Which is remarkable because he and Donahoe um, oversee the forced resignation of uh, B.J. Pack, the U.S. attorney in Georgia, the Northern District of Georgia. And Rosen is serving Barr when Barr is, you know, I think it's a pretty explosive report this morning in Politico, but it hasn't gotten much attention, where they're charging the FBI to go investigate all of these cases of bogus allegations of election fraud. Why? Because otherwise the some segment of the American public, which are the Trump supporters, are going to have their questions unanswered. Or so. Just a remarkable perversion of the Justice Department and the FBI and the White House chief of staff, it seems. But it's also not novel. I mean, this is like back to, this is back to like a Nixon administration in so many ways. Is this the way you see it too. And I guess the other piece of it that I think would be helpful for you to speak about that I worry about is whether the American public is ready for nuance so that when we see Jeff Rosen potentially testify in a public hearing and these others, that they're not heroes. They're not the kind of some of the whistleblowers from the Ukraine impeachment. They're, they're people who engaged in their own unethical behavior and might not therefore be so forthcoming about the decisions that they made. But I don't know if uh, we're ready for that because we either need heroes and villains, it seems like. I think people are smarter than perhaps the media gives some credit for. I actually think people can follow the craziness that has that took place within the Justice Department, within the Trump administration. 
The issue is you got to explain a lot of it. And that's not a question of anybody being stupid. It's just that there's a lot of moving pieces. And we have not been very good for a long time about making sure people understood that when they came out of our or, or once they started observing the, the the news. One of the things, though, about the I think that's important about the Justice Department and the corruption of the Justice Department under Trump is Bill Barr, of course, who began his his term under Trump with misrepresenting the uh, Mueller report uh, in a in a pretty serious way, changing the political dialogue on that, and that's of course one of the ways that the Republican Party has really garnered power is by is through innuendo by by playing the media. So I think watching the media and having the media step up to the plate a bit more in terms of actually reading the sources and not taking at face value what they're told by an administration is one of the things that really is going to be important. I mean, I thought it was really interesting the other day that that phenomenal jobs report that came out of the Biden administration got almost no coverage, almost no coverage, which was, I mean, it's one of the best job reports we've ever seen. And, you know, if it had been negative, we'd have heard a lot about it because they like those kind of stories. But it's also significant that it was a good jobs report. And what does that say about the economy? So that's one thing. But the other thing um, about Barr and the Justice Department and about the, the Trump administration that I think is so important, incredibly important to keep in mind, is that Barr was in that position because the Senate confirmed him. You know, so much of what is, uh, you know, so much of the guardrails that failed, failed because the Senate failed. You know, Trump was impeached by the House of Representatives. His the evidence against him that, you know, that I I read pretty thoroughly seemed to me utterly damning. Um, They wouldn't even hear it, you know, and and that's just an extraordinary abdication of the responsibilities of senators. And so when you look at the real troubles we're having in our society, in our government, I feel like the Senate flies under the radar screen. And really, if you look at who they confirmed, um, both in the administration, but also in the Supreme Court, who they confirmed, um, and the degree to which they were willing to permit Trump, for example, to play fast and loose with the nominating procedures. So he had so many acting deputies, secretaries, you know, he had basically an acting government as opposed to a confirmed government. There were so many ways in which he could have been and should have been reined in if people were actually doing their jobs and that he was not because the Senate essentially abdicated. So the corruption of the Department of Justice is important. I think the corruption of the administration is important, but equally important and perhaps something that needs even to be before that is the corruption in the Senate. And their willingness to go along with this, you know, they could have stopped Trump any time they wanted to, and they didn't want to, which goes back to my my suggestion that the jump from oligarchy to authoritarianism happened with a lightning speed that I did not see coming. Beware institutionalists. When people say they're institutionalists, the institution is in trouble, just like when they say they're strict constructionists, they're about to twist the construction. Heather, it is so wonderful that you could join us again. I hope you will come back again soon. None of us here begrudge you the great success you have had, because not only do you deserve it, but it's really encouraging that there's so many Americans who want thoughtful historical perspective right now. It is so essential. And so we wish you well with your daily reports, which we will continue to follow very closely. Hopefully you will come back, perhaps at some point, 
We will have good news to talk about. But in any event, uh, there will always be historical perspective that is needed, and you will certainly be our go-to. So thank you very much. Thank you to Ryan. Thank you to Kavita. Thank you to everybody for listening. Just a word to everybody who is listening to our podcast. Uh, We are taking next week a little summer vacation. We're allowed to have a week summer vacation here in the deep state. It's part of the deep state contract the contract with the deep state, but we can explain what that is later, but we get it. We get a week off. So there will be, you know, plenty of podcasts to listen to. I think we've done six or 700 hours of podcasts. So feel free to dip into some of the ones in the past and we'll be back the following week and we will be expanding our offerings in September. So there's a lot to look forward to go to the dsrnetwork.com for more information on all this. And if you want to support us, Click on membership and help us keep going and doing what we're doing. So again, thanks to Heather. Thanks to Kavita. Thanks to Ryan. Thanks to everybody for listening and uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.